There he is. There he is. What's happening? How you doing, guys? Good. Pleasure All to talk good. to you. All good in the hood. Well, let's get it going, and uh, we'll we'll kick it off right away. Super yeah, excited to be talking to Grammy-nominated can, June... can we hear him? Yeah. Hello? Yeah, you should be able to hear okay. him. Yeah, I, yeah. Couldn't, I couldn't hear for a second. Sorry about that. Uh, I just want to address you properly, so who am I speaking with? Uh, I'm uh, Mitch over here. We've okay, we've interviewed before and actually came out to your show uh, in um, uh, not Place des Arts in Montreal like a year, two, oh, right. two years ago, three years ago. It seems like a century ago. It seems like a century ago. <laughs> and like uh, ages ago. There you go. <laughs> and uh, Jeremy there is managed by Barry, who uh, was uh, what's Barry's last name? Barry Garber. Come on, Barry Mitch, Garber. you know Barry. Yeah. So. Uh, Jeez. So, yeah, yeah, Barry said. Uh, you and uh, Barry used to do a bunch of shows and stuff back in the day. He said he knows you very well. So, Barry, uh, a promoter? Yeah. Yeah, Barry Garber. You worked with Donald K. Donald forever. Okay. And... Yeah, Donald. Yeah. Is Donald still around? He's alive, but he's in poor health, apparently. He's, uh, yeah. he's not doing not doing that great. And apparently he's taking all of his stories to the grave with him. So that's always <laughs> good. <laughs> probably, probably a good for the good for some people to to not be exposed i guess anyway yeah he did a lot of shows in montreal i remember at the time yeah he started no, I... booking me uh first time i played in montreal as a as a recording artist it was i think a place called the in concert i think that's where he booked me huh. mm, that was in old montreal i believe it was nice it was like an old school kind of club um you know it was sort of a semi-quasi jazz club and but it was such a good gig because uh, people were there really to listen and the days of playing to a noisy club crowd and people dancing all of a sudden people were sitting down listening to the set and that was such a, a welcome change for us wow that's really cool yeah yeah i feel like music is kind of going back to that sense because it's like people are much oh. into more into the intimacy than the uh, the arena shows these days well, you know, there's nothing's uh, really that objective with COVID around. No, nobody knows what's really. Yeah, but even before that, I mean, people would look at it as a gimmick thing. But I mean, seeing your favorite artist up close in a small club versus being 200 feet away in an arena, I mean, the people will pay premium dollar for that, depending on who it is. Yep. I tell you, I um, before COVID hit, I think um, the places we're playing were somewhere between like three to 500 seat clubs and, and, you know, 1500 seat halls. And they're, they're all equally intimate enough. If you make them intimate, of course, the hall was bigger, but still a 1500 seat hall is intimate enough for, for a show that really projects out. Yeah. This kind of show with the kind of band I had with horns and all that really spoke outwardly, almost like an opera singer, you know, singing to mm -hmm. the last balcony. Yeah. And I mean, with advances in uh, sound, live sound and stuff, I mean, if you're playing Pro Tools and with R-Verb cranked up on the mix bus, it'll sound like an arena anyway. So, <laughs> Well, you know, it really gets down to, uh, you know, how people perform because you can't get away. I mean, you can get away with stuff. Uh, producers making records for artists these days uh, that have, a, you know, vibe or whatever. It, it's really hard to tell whether an artist knows how to sing or not. Uh, and um, although there are some gimmicks that people are using live, more or less you can tell if a group can play and if an artist can sing. And yeah. I think that's what people, um, it's almost like going to see a death-defying you know, trapeze artist now to see mm -hmm. a person sing live. Wow, well, you can really do it. <laughs> well, it's like Mitch always says, you know, before we used to go see concerts and now we go see a show. It's, yeah. it's all about the show. So. Well, we changed the name. In, in the 70s, you went to a concert and now you go to a show. Mm-hmm. 
you know yeah. well, they're, you know, they're interchangeable because we i don't say i put on a concert i always say i put on a show so it really <laughs> comes, comes down to you know that uh, when we tour we have a 10 people on the road right we have a seven or eight piece band on stage uh the feeling is after all these years of touring um if you get off stage feeling like it's not happening you're not doing your best the band is not doing their best you just don't want to do it anymore but when you get off stage exhilarated and you know you exhilarated the audience and you know you sang your best after 50 years of singing uh you say okay well then a little bit longer let's do it yeah yeah no totally and especially you know if you're british it's it's a gig it's not a show mitch it's a gig <laughs> of course of course <laughs> well listen i gotta do a proper introduction here because uh we hit the ground running uh more yeah. of a good thing it's a re-release slash part new album it's off to a great start it was number one on amazon before it's official release this upcoming friday on october 15th which is really exciting uh grammy nominated juno award-winning absolutely iconic canuck welcome to the show mr gino vanelli there he is everybody called an iconic canuck <laughs> in fact that's the name the uh, the the name of your next album uh, gino vanelli iconic canuck it's gonna be great the artwork will be beautiful too yep yep just uh, a beaver and a canadian flag right there <laughs> it'll, it'll be perfect <laughs> Throw a couple of loonies on the cover while you're at it <laughs> so so let's just quickly talk about the about the reissue you you put out the or part of these songs in 2009 and then you sort of sat there for for 12 years they stewed a bit and you said you know what I got a few things I need to tinker with. I got a few new ideas to bring to the table. Tell me about that process. No, it wasn't like that at all. No, okay. You know, um, uh, you know since 2009, after 2009, we put out an album called The Best and Beyond. Mm -hmm. uh, I took my band into the studio and we did some of the old hits. And um, uh, it was sort of a remake of stuff from the 70s and 80s. And then after that, I worked uh, for a few years on an album called Wilderness Road that I released two years ago. Yeah. And... Um, in speaking with Claude Bellani, who's the president of SRG uh, ILS Records, I think they're the th third or fourth biggest now on, on Universal um, Records, or um, whatever, Universal. And, and he called me one day and he said, you know, I really like that album, Good Things. I keep playing it every day. I said, well, what do you like about it? He said, the song that's on his reasons were all the right reasons. And I said, well, if you like it so much, let, let's, let's talk about re-releasing it. Because it, by some... Uh, chance it never got released in North America. He says, you're kidding. So I said, no, it never did. It just it just never happened. Um, so uh, we thought about it, and I said, how about I record four new tracks, and I remaster it, and I, I edit a few parts that I think needed editing. So that's what we did. We remastered it, edited a few parts. I re-recorded re four tracks, uh, including a remake of a song called The River Must Flow from the Brother to Brother record. Yeah. Um, and... Um, it's coming out, and um, I'm very pleased with it. Of course, at the same time, I'm working on a brand new album now to be released next May, along with uh, three web concerts. Oh, oh wow! Well, all right, let me ask you about making new music because there there are a lot of artists that I go see these days, and they're sort of playing the same set for the last twenty years, and they have no interest in making new music. What sort of keeps you motivated to 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 put out? new stuff why not just go play black cars and i just want to stop and you know well i mean there are some obvious uh, reasons the first reason is i'll be bored to death you know i mean if you're bored to death you just you just can't hit the notes anymore because right. part of you is saying why do it right you know why why the plane ride why this hotel you know why the bad food if i, <laughs> I 
can't enjoy myself on the, on the stage. Why coach but, class on Spirit uh, Airlines? What, what's, what's <laughs> not worth that's, it. That's the basic reason. But the real, I think that perhaps the more, um, well, let's just call it uh, almost a religious reason, is that um, if, if you're born and raised and if you uh, adopted a sort of artisan mentality, you have this feeling, if I can't do it the way I really love doing it, I won't do it at all. Right. And uh, I think it stands for, for everything um, outside of music as well, too. So my, my, my credo was, was to be able to, um, to do it so that I actually get goosebumps on stage. And, and uh, that's why. That's why I take songs from the past and I kind of open them up, look what they're made of and say, how about we mix that and then? How about we add a horn section? How about we scratch that and add this? And um, ever since I started doing that, oh, probably nine, uh, two, 2007, 2008, um, a lot of people told me that, you know, you really dispel a lot of audiences, um, they'll, they'll walk out on you and so on and so forth. But really quite the opposite has happened because I find a lot of people feel the same way I do. They want to hear the essence of the song and they want to hear the spirit of the song and they don't want it totally mangled, uh, but they want to hear it updated to what, what, would, what would we do with the song if it was 2021? Right. And that's why. And that's why we still really like the tour. And that's why a lot of people still come to our concerts. Well, you know what? A lot of artists are doing that now. I mean, a great White example Snake. would be White Snake, and David Coverdale's gone in. They've been putting out these things called, uh, you know, the bl- re- White Snake reimagined, and they're taking the original tracks and they're they're replacing the original drums with like updated drum samples and right. remixing the guitars, right. and it sounds like modern rock radio, and it still sounds super fresh. So I think that's awesome that you're doing that. Yeah, I mean. Uh... When we do it live, I mean, just to add a horn section to some of the old songs like Nightwalker and People I Belong To and whatever, um, really adds a new dimension, you know, to the song itself, uh, to the point where people want to re-record these songs again. I mean, Claude came to me the other day, so how about we redo uh, a couple more songs on a Brother to Brother record that you're doing live. So, um, but as, for, as far as I'm concerned, I'm always writing. I'm always got new things, uh, new songs I'm working on. I've got already seven or eight. I've written for the next record called The Life I've Got. Of course, back in the day, radio was incredibly important to an artist, MTV. In 2021, it's more and more turning into the Facebook and the Instagram and, and TikTok and stuff. As an artist, how are you adapting to the times and trying to reach your audience, but also reach a new one at the same time? Well, we, really, the more things change, of course, the more they stay the same. It's, it's really the, the pith and marrow of it is really content. The, the delivery system will always change. And I can bet you in 10 years from now, uh, you look at Facebook or whatever we're talking through and say, yeah, well, it's not those were the days. Um, this is always going to be something. I mean, look at old radio. Look at uh, old TVs, the old Marconi TVs, black and white TVs. It's, it's long ago, but not that long ago. And so uh, that forever changes. But I don't know about you, but you know, it may be 30 years old, but when you look at some of Ray Romano's performances on Everybody Loves Raymond, they're classic because he hits a nerve that is a universal nerve. And so uh, it's, it's that way when you're watching Casablanca, you know, from 1942 yeah. uh, or 44. And so as far as I'm concerned, the delivery systems will always change and be updated. But um, just like a song will 
change maybe with its chords, with, with how you orchestrate it, how you arrange it. But, but the melody and the lyric, you know, you, you take a good song as a good song, and that's why people still gravitate towards some Beatles songs, you know, Jerome Kern or Cole Porter or George yeah. You mentioned that you're going to be working on a new record probably coming out next year, and you're going to do some web shows. How do you plan on doing that? Are you going to get the whole band together on, like, a stage, yeah. on, like a, on a set? Yeah. and? My friend uh, who, who does a lot of my mastering here, his name is Nick Moon, and he bought a building, and he, he's turned the whole lot uh, – bottom floor into a place that we can do web concerts oh cool five six camera system and lights and all that and it's, it's really a cool place and so we're going to do um not only two or three shows there but we'll do i plan to have guests and also being interviewed and interviewing some of my favorite people whether they be people who are philosophers poets uh you know artists of, of any kind and um i i'd like to also branch out other you know in, in, into topics other than music too that have right. something with the arts mm -hmm. and something with culture that affects many musicians because i know a lot of writers a lot of uh composers um you know read uh culturally pivotal stuff and it affects how they write what they write about and what they sing about mm. let me just quickly ask you about brother to brother because that's the one that that sort of i i would say changed the career if i if i can phrase it that way well, um, it, it, it was a bit of a um a jackknife in a sense yeah mm -hmm. but uh it, it all you know all the roads led up to that um because um from 1974 on the albums kept on selling more and more and more and then there was a decision to make uh we were doing rather well uh just having um our own select select selective and also distilled audience and so the question was posed to me, you know, do you, do you want to go mainstream? Yeah. And um, I wasn't sure about it. And then when Ross, my brother Ross, showed me a song called I Just Want to Stop, I said, okay, let's go for it. It's one of the greatest songs ever. Yeah. And just by the way, for the uh, Kiss geeks out there, uh, Jimmy Haslett played bass on it, also played bass on some Kiss records. Just, I just want to throw that out there. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just going to throw that out there because we always got to get a Kiss or a Mutt Lang reference in here. But always, um, you did seem to me as a the reluctant star because you know as you go into the 80s so this you know i just want to stop is huge you go into the 80s black cars is huge uh, uh wild horses is huge but you didn't seem to want to be into the video thing and the much music and you seem to pull away rather than jump in uh, you know feed into the fire talk to me about that it was an odd time for me mitch because um although you know, part of me uh, knew how to do it and I enjoyed making the videos. I enjoyed recording. Um, I had uh, started to study um, the theologies of the world. Um, I started to get deep into the philosophies of the humanities. Uh, when uh, there was a Lutheran college near near my house at the time in Southern California, went back and studied minority literature, and um, I became deeply, deeply interested, you know, in. Um, <laughs> what makes people tick and uh, the questions why we're here, where we're going, where do we come from? And that, that started really, really um, being my everyday, um, my everyday thought process. So once you get on that kick, uh, sometimes making music and being so wholly uh, invested in it seemed a little silly. 
because uh, I want to, I was I wanted answers to bigger questions. And it's only when I uh, moved from Southern California to here in, in Oregon that I settled upon wanting to get back into the business in a different way. Right. And I started recording the stuff that was people would consider less mainstream, more esoteric, whatever. Um, but then the joy came back for me. Right. Because I knew by the time Wild Horses and some of those other cuts were coming out, I was in my late 30s, I knew that end of my pop career was just just right at hand and i just didn't want to chase that in my later years did you hate the pop music though no i just didn't have any particular affinity particular affinity for it for never hated anything it's just uh, it, you know if it doesn't kind of stir you right you, you just don't give your all to it it's an amazing thing what yeah. causes inspiration what mm -hmm. was was your path a little bit like Cat Stevens going over to Yusuf Islam? Was, was that sort of, you just sort of had the spiritual awakening and said, I got another path well, to follow. Cat, he, uh, he chose right. a particular um, orthodoxy right, and went for it. And uh, although my path was much the same in the sense that I, I sought and sought and sought, I, I knew that at one point, any one path is not my path. Right. And that I, I, I understood that um, there's so many great things that many paths have to offer. And that, um, <clears throat> not to say that I chose a cafeteria-style spirituality, <laughs> just, just uh, to say that I, I thought there was so much to learn from so many cultures that to limit myself to one was to become, in a sense, what I never wanted to become. And that's mm -hmm. become, um, so fundamental that I couldn't move or change or break out of my own fundamentalism. God. Because when you look up to the stars and you look up to the sky and there's nothing fundamentalism, nothing fundamental as far as um, ontologically or epistemologically about looking up to the, to, to the universe. It's, it's infinity is wide open. There are laws, there are principles, um, there are things we can follow that it can teach us. Right. Uh, but free will says, well, how will I, what will I do with it? So you're looking at the empty canvas. As long as you know what a right angle is, you can begin. <laughs> you can. Yeah. So, so let me tell you, let me ask you this then. If I say to you, hey, Gino, black cars and wild horses for me in the 80s, growing up through high school, were some of the greatest songs that I heard on the radio, the greatest songs I saw in much music. Do you look at that and say, that's a great compliment? Or you go, Ugh, poor you, you should, you should be listening <laughs> to something else. <laughs> I don't think I get that cynical about it, you know, okay. and uh, I don't think I get that patronizing about it. Okay. I, I do look upon it, you know, fondly, but as a moment in time. And um, it's it's fun to go back and, and check out my thought process, you know, and, and, and play a few of the chords. Yeah, look what I used to do. Uh, and right. and I, I, I remember the story behind Black Cards. I mean, I went to my friend. Roy Freeland's house, and I said, I have a song called Black Cars, and I show him a few lines. I said, what do you think the song is about? And he said, you know, why don't you go to um, Hollywood Boulevard and sit, on a, sit on, a, on a bench there and watch people go by? It's probably going to hit you. And that's what I did. And um, I remember it was a very hot October day with Santa Ana winds were blowing, and the sun was shining bright, and there was this lady in a fake black fur coat with heavy white caked makeup on heavy lipstick, dark red, crimson red lipstick. And she looked to be, I don't know, it's hard to tell when you're in your 
early 30s, everyone looks old. <laughs> but uh, maybe she was in the 50s or 60s. And uh, she had a perfect kerchief on, much like Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. And it really hit me that, that this was a very odd person. Like she had missed the boat, but insisted that it would come back and she'd be ready for it. And um, hmm. so she kept uh, two days, three days that I went there, she would pass by all the time. Maybe hoping to be discovered like Lana Turner at Rexall Drugstore, you know. <laughs> but I went back home and I washed my car. I had a black Camaro Z28 at the time. And I, I, I thought to myself, no matter what I do, every time the sun beams on this side of the car, I can't quite get the fine lines out. You see all the details. It's all not good. And kind of the ugly details. And I said, you know, that's exactly what she was avoiding. Her kerchief, she'd walk with her head down, trying to walk in the shade. I said, that's exactly it. She's my black car. And that's how it came about. Wow. Yeah, it's such it's such and, and by the way, it's such a great song. I mean, growing up in the '80s and having much music. I mean, Jeremy, you're younger. You don't you know, but when you saw those videos and you heard those songs and Gino and Brian Adams and Gowan, what a great time! What a, what well, a my time. much music was Shania Twain's "Man, I Feel Like a Woman" and Backstreet Boys' <laughs> "Larger Than Life." So, you know, same experience. Yeah, well, there are some good songs there. Yeah, so I mean, don't don't knock it. Yeah. has its ups and downs. You know. Yeah. In the 70s, we had great artists in Earth, Wind & Fire, Stevie Wonder, but we also had, I don't know, not, not to demean them, Brownsville Station or something, you know, like that. So, hey, come on, Smoking in the Boys Room is a great classic. You, yeah. can't, you can't. Motley Crue covered it. I mean, jeez. <laughs> and speaking of Don't Knock It, Gino, I got to tell you, one of my favorite ever, ever, somebody defending their fandom of an artist happened with your name getting dropped. Mitch and I were backstage at a concert one year. It was like we were some metal festival. And we were talking to the former drummer of the Scorpions, James Kotak. And I need a name drop him because exactly who it was and the story is amazing. Because yeah. we were standing there in the hotel afterwards. And we were talking about like some of our favorite artists. We're staying over from Montreal, this and that. He's like, oh, Gino Vanelli. Oh, my God. I grew up with his music. I'm such a huge fan. He's the greatest. So inspiring to me in my music career. And the guy that we were standing next to started chuckling like, Gino Vanelli. What are you talking about? He got up and clacks the guy in the face and said, fuck you. Don't you ever talk shit about Gino Vanelli. He's a fucking legend. And he, he, true. Was, he was loaded, ready to go again. We're like, whoa. And it was the greatest moment. I was like, Gino Vanelli. Damn. Yeah, he's got some hardcore fans. I'm hardcore telling you. Hardcore fans. And I will was... never forget that. Yeah, that was in Maryland that happened. That was at the uh, M3 when he, yeah. That's where it was, yeah. Was a, I, feel like a, I feel like a damsel in a tower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was shocked. I was like, holy crap. I just saw somebody put like fist to mouth over an artist that they're defending and they love. And I was like, that is awesome. That is rock and roll. That's what it should be. Um, yeah. It's sort of the, uh, the mantra, though, for many of the years. that when people really kind of um, gravitate and... and I mean, look, look at what we do very, very fondly. And there are those who do not, you know, vibrate with that sentiment at all or are just not in the know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. don't understand that kind of, you know, admiration. Yeah, and the love and the impact that you had. Because imagine that you had such an impact on somebody that they were willing to get into a physical altercation to defend your honor. <laughs> and he hit I his mean, own band member, which I thought was... Own... Yeah. Well, maybe, just... maybe alcohol helped a little bit. Uh -uh. 
<laughs> Maybe. Maybe. But um, musically speaking, on the next album, where are we going? Are, are we staying sort of in the jazz thing? Are we staying somewhere else? Are we doing another brother to brother? Where are we going in terms of music style? Well, you know, um, I, I tend to lean a little bit, uh, although I have a lot of the songs written, uh, I, in, in the end, depending upon what people feel about more of a good thing, you know, I, I'll, I'll leave it a little bit open. I mean, although I keep writing every day and I have many, many songs, in fact, I have two or three records written, um, I still, what I'm going to record will depend a little bit upon what kind of acceptance the more of a good thing uh, gets and what the singles do. We're working on our second video right now. The River Must Flow, I, I don't know if you saw the video, it turned out very, very nice. My brother Ross yeah. does videos. And uh, we've just recorded the videos for a song called Evermore. Um, huh. it's, I think one of the better ballads I've, I've written and uh, it's just about finished. I think it will be finished uh, by Friday. Oh, that's great. Uh, so it, I'll wait and see how, what people, I mean, once in a while I do read comments, uh, what people feel. And so when, um, when the record is released, uh, I'd like to read what people feel about uh, the record and it. It might mean inspire me to say, I think I'll stick with this direction and that direction. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and I, I want to wrap up on this, or I'll, I'll, my last question for you is this. What makes a successful song to you personally right now? Because you look at I Just Want to Stop, the Grammy nomination, it's on Billboard, blah, 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 black cars all over the place. What is successful for you now? Is it just, it, it's a feeling, it's spiritual? Where do you look at a song and go, yep, yeah, that's good. That's, that's, that's how I mark the success. Amar Nome, W.H. Auden said that there was certain poetry most of the poetry he, he wrote was rot, according to him. But he says every once in a while there's a gem. And so that's the, kind of the way I look. I don't exactly call it rot, but uh, I, I think a lot of the stuff we do almost hits the mark. And once in a while, you really do hit the mark. And um, even the greatest of writers, you know, once in a while, they really hit the mark. But you can't. It's a moving target. The mark is a moving target. So you do this all your life. And once in a while you poke at it and you, put, and you miss it. It's kind of like a, trying to catch a fly. Yeah, but you're right. It's true. What, what was a hit in 1976 is not a hit in 2021 and vice versa. And, and yeah. yeah. And there are songs that uh, are great songs that will never. Um, there's that movie with Ricky Gervais, uh, I think called Ghost Town. Did you see that? Yeah. There's, and there's a theme song that keeps on playing. And I can't remember the artist's name. And I thought for sure that, that that song that was playing was so cool. I thought that would be a big song. And it wasn't. And I was very surprised, even having writing the coattails of Ghost Town. So you never really know. But that's not to say that the song is not great. So I think your criteria has to be your own personal criteria. Gotcha. And for me, it's not so much success. It's listening to the songs. And God, that song covers all the bases. I'm satisfied intellectually, and my gut is just kind of churning. Yeah. Even but, if nobody hears it, you're like, I feel really good about that. But, you know, there, there's a huge band out of the UK called Status Quo, and they have some of the greatest songs ever. And then you go into, like, Boston, and you say Status Quo, and they go, who, who are you talking about? Yeah. And you're like, but the song is so per- Who are you talking about? It's, yeah. it's just weird. It's just weird. Well, you know, a lot of, uh, like, for instance, a lot of people uh, know of the Grateful Dead, say, they, they knew they were a big uh, stadium group, so on and so forth. But, you know, I, I read through Robert Hunter's lyrics, you know, and he was really a good lyricist. And I think that that's, 
that's the undercurrent of the band because without that there's there's something there's something credible about the band because of what's being said and how it's being said and um so many times with a group like status quo uh when they're really good writers the people who get it really get it because they they hear it from the undercurrent up and a lot of people don't bother with the undercurrent they just look and see if it's a nice river that's flowing and they don't like it whatever Uh, and to speak to your grateful dead thing I love Touch of Grey, and that's the only thing I know because it's the pop hit. Yeah, no, if you, if you buy a Robert Hunter's book and you read through all the lyrics that he's ever uh, written for The Grateful Dead, you say, oh, I mean, many of them are better than the songs themselves, but you understand why people had an affinity for them because what was being said was so interesting. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. Whenever I think of Grateful Dead, I never think of lyrics. I always think of the, oh, the, oh, the you, musicianship. You no, you ought to read it. You ought to read through Robert Hunter's book. And it's, it's, it's quite good. And it really gives them validity. Because if that kind of music wouldn't have any kind of lyrical validity, there'd be something, there'd be a base missing. And there really is a strong foundation to all that kind of dipsy doodling on top. Right. Hmm. Yeah. I might have to go listen to Grateful Dead now. Touch of gray, telling you. It's where you want to go. <laughs> apparently, go. Apparently, don't go for the. Apparently, go for the other stuff. <laughs> I like the pop. I have that. You know, Elton John had that too. I mean, Bernie Taupin's lyrics were always good, always very solid, and that was really the basis. I think of uh, it was the un or the silent basis of the success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Mutt Lang wrote, "Love is like a bomb, baby. Come on, get it on." So <laughs> it's hard to compete. It's true. <laughs> Do you believe in love? He also wrote that one. So, hey, come on. Huey Lewis. Huey More Lewis. of a good thing coming out on October 15th. You can pre order it now. Available wherever music is sold. You're going to do the vinyl, doing the CDs, doing the whole thing, or are you keeping this digital? Uh, no, they're doing actually, they already ran out of CDs from the pre order, so they're printing more CDs. Great. Yes. Not yeah. not doing the sticking away, stand away from the vinyl? I don't know if they'll do the vinyl. I mean, I, personally, to tell you the truth, I mean, vinyl is not my favorite thing. Because I come from that era where, you know, my records would use out all the time and they'd, they'd skip or they'd pop or they'd tip. Or they would warp because you didn't store them properly yeah, or, or the heat by would the melt them. You get into the third cut, you have such denigration of sound, you know, that by the time you get into the fifth cut, there's hardly any sound at all. So, I mean, I came from, from, from the era where it was frustrating to me. And when digital came out, I could see, well, now I can have consistency in sound. Now, a lot of people think digital is cold. Not if you record right. Thank you very much. Very I, I approve of that message because I grew up in the vinyl era, and when CDs came out in '83, I couldn't wait to throw the vinyl eight tracks out of, out the door. Yeah, the hiss it, and the pock and the crackle and the <laughs> wow and flutter. <laughs> or if somebody was walking in the kitchen too heavily, it would bounce up just you know here comes the solo oh great mom's in the kitchen yeah but come on listen it's all 180 grams super heavy duty vinyl these days it's not jumping and bouncing around when you're walking it's a nostalgic piece and it's great to have uh you know something to hold it was always great to be to get an album read the lyrics look at the artwork especially the double covers yes the gatefold yes yeah and it all now it's feels so archaic and feels so big and so unwieldy. It's like I can't even hold it. Yeah. yeah. CDs, um, man. Digital CDs are the best. And you can get, I mean, listen, Mutt Lang did Hysteria in 1987. It's the digital, rec- it's perfect. You don't need yeah. vinyl. 
you have to really be aware of it and actually come from old school to know the difference. And when you're recording, they have all kinds of equipment today to really help you achieve that more analog, because our ears hear analog. That's why digital imitates analog. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so if, you, if you're really aware of that, uh, having worked old school all, all my life, then you know when it sounds real or not. Well, listen, I'm all about the mastered for iTunes, Spotify compression. So, uh, you know, <laughs> no, 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 98 uh, bit rates, you know, not 92 to 320. But no, no, I want a 96 bit rate. Come on. No, 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 no. <laughs> there, all right. Go. Gino, this is so great to meet you this afternoon. It's so great to chat. We'll do this again when the new stuff comes out next year. Absolutely. All right. Nice talking to you guys. Cheers. See you later. Bye. Hey.